Okay, so I'm speaking to Dr. Mark Taylor, who is, among other things, the chief doctor physician at Samaritan Cardiovascular Services. This business is at Ligor Business Center, it's beside Mega Mart, Waterloo Road. And he is board certified in general surgery, vascular surgery, cardiovascular surgery, pediatric cardiovascular surgery, and the list goes on. And in addition, you can be board certified, but what everybody, I would like to tell everybody at least, he will not admit it. He is an outstanding graduate of the University of the West Indies and certainly has proven himself over and over, both academically and otherwise with his patients in North America and has returned to his country, his homeland, Jamaica, to do some very good work that he is continuing, and I hope to get into it here. So welcome, Sir Taylor. Thank you. <laughs> yes, so I've been bothering Dr. Taylor for a few weeks well, so we were just, I'm going to joke about that, and I'm, I'm very genuinely glad you're here, because I notice and... If you research, uh, that is, punching Dr. Taylor's name into Google, you will see a couple of articles come up about lower limb amputation and his passion to reverse this and to stop this and to improve our outcomes, is what we call it. And to back up this story even further, I actually had a patient that I really was thinking of trying to send to your doc, and unfortunately that woman never made it to you and she had really what was an above knee amputation i think i, I shared this with you she mm -hmm. had yeah. yeah so she had what she had was really two toes a little darkened what it what as a situation some people call gangrene no that was what they thought it was at hospital this is no indictment on the hospital it just never looked that bad to me because there are some features of it that were consistent with life. There was feeling in the foot, there was no odor and things like that. And uh, lo and behold, she went for a dressing and I heard she was admitted and that was the outcome. So I would I would love to ask you, Doc, how, first of all, how do you think we could improve that situation generally and in general and in uh, in specific terms? Okay, so uh, just to let you know that that's also my problem because um, I see patients kind of late. The initial signs and symptoms can be very subtle. And particularly in a diabetic, things can move very fast. I had a one of my mentor was um, Dr. Bernard Anderson. He was chief of surgery at DC General in, in DC. And he used to always tell us that diabetics will make you a liar because you will say, oh, it was fine this morning. And then by afternoon or the following day, it's gone. So there is urgency. Now, in, 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 in terms, that, that's the background, in terms of action. Um, anybody who is suspected of having peripheral arterial disease, arterial occlusion, um, if it is acute, 
they just need to be referred to a vascular surgeon if it is acute. If it's more chronic, um, particularly in diabetics. Um, but the things to look for are, one, pain, but diabetics are notorious for not having pain because of their neuropathy. Um, there are two types of pain that we worry about. There is intermittent claudication where they have pain when they walk, they rest, it goes away, they walk, it comes back. That's usually in the calf. That's one level of pain. More severe than that is what we call rest pain, where they have pain, particularly at nights when they try to sleep. They have leg pain, foot pain, and classically, patients will hang the leg off the side of the bed because a gravity does get slightly more pain, and they just kind of learn this. So that, that's the pain that they get. But any discoloration um, is an indication for, you know, referral, for workup. Any um, ulceration uh, is an indication for referral. Particularly if there is gangrene of a toe, the obstruction could be pro quite proximal, sometimes in the thigh. Um, and it just because the toes are the furthest from the source that the toes are affected first. And what we see sometimes is that the toes are removed when that is not really the problem because sometimes when the toes are, well, if, if the blood supply is inadequate, then um, removing the, the toe won't solve that problem and it will probably make it worse. Um, my approach is, is to counter the problem of sending patients around for ultrasound and for all of that. We basically set up for, we do our own arterial ultrasound and venous ult ultrasound if necessary, for example, if there's a venous ulcer. So we do our own um, ultrasound. We also have a device for checking the blood flow, measuring the, the waveform and measuring the pressure, the perfusion pressure in the toe. And then at the ankle, we have what's called an ankle brachial pressure or a toe brachial pressure. So it's important that everything is in one spot and you don't lose time um, because time is of the essence if there is um, compromise blood flow. Um, what I have seen in Jamaica is very aggressive disease, particularly from the knee down. Uh, this is classically a um, pattern of disease that is seen mainly in diabetics, and then smokers get disease in the from above the knee. But in Jamaica, I see mainly diabetic pattern, even in patients who are not diabetic. And it, it's, it's smaller vessels, the tibial vessels between the knee and the ankle. And it's pretty, um, it's pretty aggressive. So I would say the approach is early identification and refer. By the time they develop gangrene, it's already late, not too late, but it's 
pretty late. The time to to figure this out is when they start having pain or there's discoloration or there's numbness or the foot feels cold before they develop gangrene. Um, that is the key. It's the urgency. If you think that there is um, arterial disease, it's, it's pretty urgent. And it's better to just send them for vascular consultation than send them for an ultrasound. It takes a week. Maybe you send for a CAT scan, a CT, a CT angiogram. That takes more time. Sometimes by the time I see them, they've had all these studies and it's, it's still too late. So, so it's you, urgency so, is important. So your advice would be just to avoid the, the investigation and just send, yeah. send the patient on. Yes, yes, yes. Because um, the gold standard test is that, that you do, it sounds like it's ultrasound or? Well, the gold standard, we have two type of tests. We, we can do the ultrasound. We do... We do ultrasound, that is arterial duplex. We do segmental pressures. And if we are in doubt, then we do the transcutaneous oxygen measurement or TCPO2 or TCOM, TCOM, which directly measures the oxygen uh, concentration in the skin. If that, that is definitive, if it is low and the normal is above 70 millimeters of mercury, between 70 and 30 or 70 and 40, it's a little borderline. But, you know, if there's a compromised toe and you're going to amputate it, if the uh, TCPO2 or TCOM is less than 30 or 40, probably will not heal, it will get necrotic, it will get infected, and, you know, they will need an amputation. So uh, we do those tests. What is written as a gold, star as a gold standard is what's called digital subtraction and geography, where you inject dye into the artery, you do a picture before, the dye and you subtract that from the picture with the dye so you only see the blood vessels. Um, that is generally all indicated if you actually plan to intervene, whether with stent or otherwise. The pattern of disease that I see is usually from the knee down and most of those, it's so severe that a stent or angioplasty has no real place. They need open revascularization with um with vein with the saphenous vein. So to be clear for the, the patients that are will listen to this, essentially you take mm -hmm. the vessel and you jump that occluded area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there's you. There's usually, a, there are three vessels that goes down from the knee to the ankle. Mm -hmm. uh, one at the front, one at the back, and one deep inside. The, it's called the posterior tibial at the back behind the ankle and the dorsalis anterior tibial on the front of the foot. If you can get very often, um, there's nothing 
from below the knee to the ankle, but very often with angiography, you can see uh, reconstitution of the vessels at that level. And then you can take a graph from the level of the knee down to the ankle to save the foot. The, um, then you can do the amputation knowing that the foot, you can do like a toe amputation, minor amputation, all the dead and devitalized tissue has to be removed, whether it's a toe or two toes. If they're black, they have to go. They're non-viable. If they're infected, they have to go. All infected and non-viable or you know, borderline viable tissue has to be removed to give the best chance of uh, saving the leg. And, and when we say saving the leg, we're generally talking about saving enough foot so that the person can walk. So if it has spread to the ankle, there's no real point in just trying to save that because they will they won't be able to walk. So we need a good two thirds to a third um, of the plantar surface of the foot intact, so we can save that so that they can walk on that. So, so playing devil's advocate here, mm -hmm. where is our deficiency then? Why do you think we are seemingly aggressive based on what you have told the media and otherwise? Why do you think that? Okay. Where, where can we improve? Okay, so, so let's lay some groundwork. Um, it is well established that the incidence of amputation is actually a marker for the level of care in general. Even with, even with um, high-level care, and the best model is probably not the U.S. They have all of the, um, all of the technology and resources, but you know, a country like Australia, they have resources, but they're more organized. And the U.S. is, you know, they're moving in that direction. It has to be um, all of us are guilty. On my part, there should be more awareness. Um but what we have put together here is the recommended <clears throat> approach, which is um, a multi-specialty group that involves ultrasound. You have a general surgeon who can help with the bridement and whatever, vascular surgeon, which is myself, then wound care. So everything is taken care Um in a timely manner, particularly with diabetics. So you need an internist, you need a podiatrist, you need all of these services working in unison. It's not just a surgeon. It's not, it's not one person. It, 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 you need many inputs to optimize the outcome. Judging from, from the well-structured program like you know, they have in Australia, uh, we should be able to save about 80%. It's never 100%, but it requires early identification. For example, 
if a diabetic came in with an infected foot, well, that has to be dealt with there and then. There's no waiting. And, and if, um, if a pulse is not palpable, then I would say that patient goes straight to vascular. If the patient has pulses, the general surgeons can debride it and, you know, hope that it heals. But if there are no pulses, then I would say straight to vascular because that patient needs a vascular eval. And if there's significant peripheral arterial disease, then he needs to go straight for an angiogram, revascularization, debridement, minor amputation, um, intravenous antibiotics, optimize um, control of his diabetes. And then in the recovery and longer phase, they need to have significant uh, risk, factor, risk factor modification, no smoking, uh, statins, cholesterol, lowering drug, uh, um, antiplatelet or full anticoagulation. And that's the way to keep it going. It, it it breaks down with just um it's multifactorial and a breakdown in one era result in um bad outcomes. So it's it's the internist to control the um glucose because we know elevated glucose is associated with poor healing, increased risk of infection. Um, it's the general surgeon or vascular surgeon to remove all infected tissue and evaluate how far the infection um, has gone. And then it's the vascular surgeon for bringing new blood supply to the leg. So, uh, and then in longer term, podiatry is important for offloading and make sure preventive care is adequate so it's really the team work yes the team, the team approach yes so it seems like it would be because i must admit i did some time in general surgery and i do remember seeing these patients doc and we would we as a junior registrars would make the call i mean other times the things were basically when there was a fall old uh, patient, white count was high and various other factors. So they, in my estimation, my experience, my limited experience at the time, I was thinking that, well, definitely this would have to go. But I, I really, I have been involved in some that not, definitely some darkening on the toes, but a decision was made based on what was wrong with the patient. I mean, white count, I'd say normal, and we would just eyeball and based on experience and on, on our seniors, really, we would say, well, this one has to go. So in my, my, just in my mind, I'm just thinking that this would be viable or, or valuable, at least to attempt to do this sort of thing whilst in hospital. Now, when you're in hospital, especially a keepage, it's... That is an experience, an experience Excellent. indeed. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know how we would implement such a system there. In truth and in fact, I've left uh, many, many moons now, but I, I would say, based on what I hear, a similar situation. 
And for anybody listening to this, it's just a challenging situation with a lot of patients that need surgical assistance, need operative care. And you, unfortunately or fortunately, well, maybe more unfortunately, these are some patients we get concerned about leaving them, especially in light of space factors and 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 what what I guess I suppose what would happen if we did not do something. So I think that that in fairness to the, the surgeons, yeah, but, uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a problem with resource. You can't leave a leg. A compromised leg overnight, it will get infected to save the patient's life. You do the second best thing, and that is to remove the leg. And it's 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 not it's not an indictment on the surgeon or it, it's more resources because to to really um, get involved with limb salvage, you. Uh, amputation will take what an hour. Yes. Um, to harvest the vein alone, that can take an hour, and then you need at least three times magnification headlight. You need special sutures. You need heparin to flush the graft. You need uh, a vasodilator, pavarin to make sure the vessels that you're working with. Don't go into spasm. You need a Doppler to check your flow after. You need a more expensive Doppler to see the waveform to make sure that it's it's flowing, flowing. It's not just open, but it's flowing well. And the, the gold standard after revascularization is what's called a completion angiogram or completion angiography, which is you do the angiogram again to identify if there's any technical issues. So yes, it's resource intensive, not just from the multi-specialty that you need, but actual um, surgical time. And I, I, I am quite aware that um, we live for healthcare where we have this really war thing going on where <laughs> the penetrating trauma takes precedence over everything because they're all emergencies and everything gets I don't know how you solve that problem that's a uh, administrative political uh, society problem that um, would just take up all of our time <laughs> Yes, you know, that would need our entire episode. Uh, I've actually spoke to some individuals, some interesting thoughts about that, and I agree with you. I, I do not know the answer to that. It's, um, it seems as if, well, the resources would help, and that's the standard answer, because I tend to ask people that, which um, God would have say no, that what, how would they improve things locally? Because it's something I think about, especially in COVID and all these sorts of things. And and I, I remember actually if we could jump to the center doc, I know we we run out of time here, but I, I had worked in cardiothoracic surgery. Again, this is no indictment. And we had some really challenges with acute myocardial infarction and doing these cabbage procedures. And I remember them taking quite a long time. And 
due to exposure on the internet and speaking to other individuals, uh, I think I spoke to a registrar when I was doing my little, I did a little rotation at Grady Memorial Dock. Mm-hmm. Grady, mm-hmm. okay, you know Grady is right. So, and he was saying that actually I encountered these uh, fellows that they do three to five a day. Uh, mm-hmm. If the boss is really feeling in a good mood, you up it. And I was just thinking that, look at that. And he said, well, but remembering that in your situation, it'll be different because he, he has resident support and he will come and do the work, the final part of it, that is the anastomosis and that sort of thing. But I'd say Asti was very impressed with that. And and I, I think that the, the, we never got to do a lot and outcomes could have been better. So from that viewpoint, doing these cabbage and these open hearts, how do you think um, we stand and what do we need to do to improve that sort of thing? Okay. Okay. So the, the background for that is this. The shorter period of time you are on bypass, the better it is. So, um, you should be able to do, a surgeon should be able to do two or three himself, personally, skin to skin open, uh, with residents, um, a, a day. And that's what I used to do. Um, but it, it, you are set up for that in terms of nursing scrub techs and scrub techs don't it's six months training they just learn how to do the instrumentation so it, it, it it's very there's a pretty tight structure to it i mean mayo clinic goes further and they have timing for the distal anastomosis timing for the proximal it has to be 10 minute distals five minute proximals that kind of thing and it just works if you are set up for it and you're um particularly if the surgeon is relieved of all the other responsibilities and just have to focus on their core job which is the surgery the cut and sew and take care of the patient so my you know we still have dreams of doing that we actually have all the equipment for open heart surgery here but we don't have all the support in terms of nursing and all of that. I suppose one day we'll get to all of that and we'll get our act together. But in the meantime, I think we have put together everything in one place. And I used to operate at Andrews. I still operate there. But if I have a vascular uh, case, I'd prefer to do it at Hargreaves. And this is why. We have all the sutures, all the graphs, all the patches, um, multiple light source, magnification. We have uh, intra-op ultrasound machine that can measure waveform, velocity. We have other smaller Dopplers. We have transcutaneous 
um, um, oxygen level measurement. We have um, the near infrared spectroscopy, which can measure the um, oxygen levels in the muscle if we're doing a lower extremity or if we're doing uh, a carotid, it can do cerebral oximetry, and that is real-time measurement. So we can get it, you know, we can intervene accordingly. Um, the good thing with leg revascularization is that almost all of them can be done with a spinal slash epidural, except if the patient was uh, is on a blood thin, and we're seeing more and more, uh, more and more of that. But it's um, you don't really see patients with just peripheral arterial disease (PAD). Um, these patients all also have uh, coronary artery disease, so they have to be evaluated echo. Uh, maybe a stress test before surgery. Um, I'm not seeing, we still kind of screen for carotid disease. I'm not seeing a lot of that, but I do know that there are significant incidents of stroke. It just seems like the population is slightly different here. We're not seeing that uh, carotid disease. But I, I think it's the structure. Is the uh, is the structure that is that is required? We at Hargreaves we try very hard to cut out a lot of the run around that runs up the patient bill, the ultrasound that is thirty five thousand dollars, the CTA. I don't know how much that is. Yeah, $50,000, $60,000. So we cut it out. We do our own ultrasound. We measure the pressure. You, If you have disease and it's obvious that the limb is at risk and a limb at risk can be from a discolored toe and also that's been there for a while and that healing to a frankly grossly infected leg and uh, um, if, if you can't get all the things together it's safest to cut the leg off but my what my practice is based on is yes we can get all the stuff that we need we can get it together and we can give you a shot at saving your leg. Um, amputation is not the end of the story. Patients generally don't do well with amputation. I mean, the, the life expectancy after amputation is probably worse than uh, after colon, after colon cancer. It's a, very, wow. it's a very bad disease. People just don't do well. They get depressed. They get bedridden. Unless they have really good support, it's uh, it's not the end of the story. It's more like the beginning. It's the beginning of the end. You don't cut off somebody's leg and say, you know, hope you get better. You, you're bedridden. You can't move around. It's it's tough. 
Exactly right. And we need to say that Hargreaves is in Mandeville. So mm-hmm. anybody that's said can definitely look up that down there. And he does his office again beside Mega Mart in uh, mm-hmm. Kingston. The the other things we, well, we you mentioned mentioned them implicitly, but I'd love to hear your take on it. Be that as a third body, I really am a family doctor, so prevention is a key part of what I do. How do you feel and advise about? I know this is not strict, strictly speaking your area, but I just love to hear the, the surgical standpoint about prevention of these issues these NCDs and so on. Yeah. So peripheral arterial disease um, is a result of general atherosclerosis. And of course, we know the risk factors is hypertension, diabetes, um, hypercholesterolemia or other hyperlipidemia, including hypertriglyceridemia. Um, Just family. Um, it's pretty strong in families. And for coronaries, not so much peripheral arterial disease, but coronary artery disease and general atherosclerosis. There's a family history. It's very important. So it's important to identify um, the patients who are at risk. And the recommendation for doing a screening test which is an ankle-brachial measurement for blood pressure, a, call it ABI, um, in a non-diabetic and a TBI because the vessels get, which is a toe-brachial index, because the diabetic vessels get calcified. So the indication is to do some sort of screening exam, and we do the screening exam, it's called a vascular lab, is anybody who who has, who is 60 and has history of hypertension, diabetes, smoking, hypercholesterolemia, or a strong, strong family history of coronary or any other arterial disease. They should be screened. Once they're screened and arterial disease is identified, if they are asymptomatic, then it should be risk factor modification, smoking cessation, diet, exercise, and cholesterol-lowering drug. And now we're out to the primary prevention with something like clopidogrel antiplatelets. So that is what needs to be um, implemented. And the, the vascular screening exams on the leg is a marker for peripheral arterial disease, but it's also a marker for coronary artery disease and carotid artery disease because atherosclerosis is, um, is a generalized disease of all, all the uh, blood vessels in the body. So um, the, the um, other thing for risk factor modification, diet. Uh, diet is important. Maybe not so much red meat, maybe not so much fatty meat, maybe more fish, more vegetable, um, olive oil. They've been back and forth with coconut oil, and I'm afraid of... of of making a recommendation on coconut oil, but I do know that as you get older, you probably should use coconut oil because 
the brain can use it easier than even glucose as you get older. But for peripheral arterial disease, I think it's olive oil. The, um, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, the, the, the cardiologists, I believe, speak about 150 minutes per week, I think, is the number of exercise. And there's some debate about the value in aspirin and the specific statin that they like. Do you have any comments on any of those things? Okay. To simplify exercise, the positive, the positive effect of exercise, and that's three times a week, four to five minutes, getting your heart rate up to... There's a chart that we use, which is age-dependent. Um... The positive effect of exercise is as strong as the negative effect of smoking. That's how I put it. That's how the study from Mayo Clinic described it. So it's very important. Um, And this is not, this is for overall health and vascular health overall. We can, I mean, they are places, uh, I'm, I'm not sure here that you can actually do um, what we call vascular health or vascular age where you measure the elasticity of the vessels early on by analysis of the waveform. And you can predict that, oh, you're developing early um, atherosclerosis and you have to be more more in tune with what's going on and be more aggressive. So addressing exercise, very important. Um, There are two types of prevention. One is primary prevention, which is, you know, they've said that, they're now said that aspirin doesn't doesn't do anything for primary, if the population at large just takes it. So maybe a baby aspirin is still good, but if you have a screening exam and um, arterial disease has been identified, I think you probably have to use um, um, clopidogrel, something a little bit stronger. Also with the um, cholesterol-lowering drugs, I prescribe it even if the cholesterol is within normal level if the patient has documented evidence of peripheral arterial disease. So I, I, I do that because that's what we did for uh, coronary artery disease. We, we, we don't have um, all the information yet. And I think that if you're developing um, atherosclerosis with a normal appearing uh, cholesterol level, maybe it's too high for you. We don't know. We've just figured out that it's the that the high density is good and the low density. We can split it up, and they have the um, risk ratio between high and low. But in general, that's what that's what. I do if you have identified peripheral arterial disease, you get you get you go on a full um, 
preventative strategy. The, the specific statin you like, Doc? Do you have one you prefer? And why? Nope. Nope. Okay. Uh, Lipitor has been there a long time. I have no problem using Lipitor. I see Rasuvastatin is used everywhere now. I don't have any problem with that either. At one, at one point, my cholesterol was, was up, and that's what I used for a while. But with diet and exercise, it's down. So excellent. Yeah, I, I just asked that because I remember Cresta being touted as this miracle drug, and it was really well. It's even reached. Crystal is also overstatting anybody listening. Yeah. And it, it really has reached a point where a lot of people, even in this country locally, they are, they have tended to go with it and noticed, especially with the advent of these generics. Very affordable. Yeah. Generics. Yeah, there's there the, the overall big picture managing and adjusting all the risk factors is more important than just one. Um right. I don't have any uh, problem with any of them. But the way the FDA is set up, there are always going to be new drugs because they just have to prove non-inferiority. Once this drug is proven to be non-inferior to one that's on the market, it's going to be approved. And then the marketing machine takes off and they convince everybody that this is the new thing and this is the best thing. But I'm a little bit more conservative. I like to wait and see. The, the statins can cause muscle pain in the, in the more severe cases. They can cause a significant myopathy. So when you're starting patient on it, you have to know if they're coming in complaining of muscle pain, tiredness. Well, you have to just have, you know, uh, an alarm in your head that maybe it's the stacking. Yes, you know. And I, then, mm-hmm. yeah, yes. Uh, that, and also, I just don't want to forget this point that I used to get patients more than one with nightmares. I just thought I never used to like the drug at all. <laughs> I mean, when I just started practicing enough where more than one for sure that I got a little bit turned off of, of that group. Granted, yeah. it was in the days of Lipitor and then Lipitor was very expensive and then they came with the, the generics landed and we said that it was I, th- I, th- I I'm not, again, I think it was with a generic. The, this was happening because the how the government works, they try and look a deal, then most of the time you get an affordable and it will be through the clinic, I would see these people. So it's really something that I would see and and, and really, as I said, I really just never liked. I wanted to get something, just one other thing here, Doc, with a couple more points, but well, one main one, since we've been talking about peripheral arterial disease, which the arteries are the vessels that take the blood away from the heart, as we know, the the venous disease in terms of there is what we can talk about the low limb, I suppose, this venous insufficiency. Do you do a lot of work there? Do you see a lot of that? And if so, what do you do? Yeah, so (laughs) actually venous insufficiency is the commonest vascular disorder that I see. And we see quite severe 
So venous insufficiency is basically the valves in the vein are damaged on the leg and the blood pools in the leg. Initially, it gets swollen. Initially, the swelling is just at the end of a long day um, and it progressively gets worse until the legs start feeling board-like. It's indurated, it gets hard, then it starts turning dark or sometimes comes becomes completely black then you get what's called um even more hardening with hemosiderosis a scarring and deposit of the iron pigment as the hemoglobin breaks down then you get uh, stasis eczema then you get ulceration we have lots of patients with venous ulcers in the practice. We break it down into three parts um, because sometimes we see really bad ulcers and sometimes it's even hard to figure out what is going on. So our approach is if you have evidence of um, CVI, we confirm that with ultrasound then then and there we like to say enlargement of the vein and we need to see reflux or reversal off flow in the vein for example with clearing your throat coughing or sometimes we elevate the leg and put it down so we can see the reversal of flow so you have uh, cvi most patients who have a risk factor or have C large ulcers we also do an arterial uh, duplex to rule out significant arterial disease so we evaluate then we take care of the ulcer we use mainly more advanced wound care products we use a non-stick we clean we clean the wound with our latest cleaner is something called anacept, which is the um, hypochlorous acid, which is supposed to be the way the neutrophils kill bacteria. So it is a balanced solution at a particular pH. Uh, it's still based on um, bleach sodium hypochlorite, but with um, uh, close buffering you can use a very low concentration and the the bleach basically is still available even though the concentration is so low it can't be prepared um you have to get it commercially so, so we clean the wound with that if it's not too bad we like to use uh two percent acetic acid if we see any evidence of pseudomonas that is addressing stern and green um then we spray on lidocaine and we strip off that biofilm biofilm is that layer of, of uh dead white blood cells and bacteria and all it's the thing that makes the wound a chronic wound is the biofilm we've try to peel that off sharply if there is necrotic tissue we remove that too and then we have a number of uh, dressings we use 
to apply to the womb, we use a hydrogel or we use manuka honey. I, 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 think, I think manuka honey works, but I don't like using it because people just get so attached to it. It's honey. It's blah, blah, blah. They've heard about it before. I don't use regular honey. It has to be uh, medical-grade honey, and it has to be from the manuka plant. And I think where that comes from is New Zealand. So we import that from the UK. And uh, and then we use um, a, a tool, which is Xeroform, which has antimicrobial um, a bismuth compound in it, which is antimicrobial, and it's non-stick. If it's absolutely clean, we use an inert um, silicone-based dressing, and then we use polyurethane foam in one or two layers, and that is supposed to last a week. Then we apply compression. We use either um, a simple compression wrap or we have an ulcer kit, which is a compression stocking that is zip up and it has an underlying stocking under that to put over the dressing. So we do wound care, we do compression and um, usually, and we give, they have pain. If it's a big ulcer, they have pain. So we give um, a triple combination of Lyrica or Gallopentin plus a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory plus Tramadol because they have pain. Um, if there's any evidence of cell like this, we will treat them with IV, anti not IV, PO antibiotics, but we try not to do that, especially when they're pseudomonas because we think, you know, the problem with resistance. We don't spend a lot of time culturing the wound. If it's pseudomonas, we'll do the 2% acetic, and it should be gone after a couple of dressing. Um, once it cleans up, then we have more options. Sometimes we use um, um, exoderm or duoderm, which is a, um, a kind of hydrocolloid. And if it is... If it is, we have other silver compounds from silverdine to the silver mesh and mesh, and we also use alginate. Alginate is a seaweed compound, but nowadays we have access to silver alginate and it slowly leaches out the silver, which is bactericidal. The thing to know, though, is this. I yeah. think apart from honey, Every product that you put on the wound mm -hmm. that releases silver or iodine, it slows down healing. So oh. you just have to get it as clean as possible and then use something inert to make it non-stick and use a polyurethane foam to absorb the moisture. The moisture content has to be um, pretty ideal. Once you get to a certain uh, small size, we can actually use alginate to scab it over. If it's not draining a lot, it will, it will dry up and just form a scab, which is a little bit easier. And then we, um, the other um, part of the management is we do 
um, endovenous radiofrequency ablation to close the offending superficial vein. That's the office procedure. We put in an IV and thread the radiofrequency probe up in the vein, inject some lidocaine around it, and then to apply radiofrequency to coagulate the vein on the inside. Um, that's our approach to um, venous stasis and venous so uh, it, there's, there's a procedure that we used to perform where we tie those perforators that, yeah. that no longer is invoked? No, no. And um, it, it goes as far as um, NICE, that is the UK quality organization recommending um, vein ablation as the primary treatment. And there are two types of vein ablation. There's laser and there's radiofrequency. I prefer radiofrequency because I don't have to deal with lasers. Because there's some risk to using lasers to you and to the patient. Not true. Mm -hmm. Oh, this has been very interesting. I, I wish we could talk so much more, Doc, but I'm just thinking a couple more things here. And uh, I think I have to let you go because you've been so generous. The, in my position, we are detailed a lot with this drug. Well, the initial one was Daflon, and now they're pushing one called Doxium. So anybody with this condition listening to this would probably know these two drugs. So from your standpoint, do any of these things work or What's your view? Simple answer. Simple answer. No. <laughs> you don't um, disappoint. <laughs> no, there's. I mean, if if you have significant CVI, use that money and get some good compression stockings. Okay. If if you have, if you have that kind of, um. It might help with other more borderline, like you could add it to something. Um, after ablation, there's uh, some leftover issues. Maybe it will work. You still have some incompetence through smaller veins, but it's. I see too many people who've been on it for five, 10 years. And I don't want to give you something and make you think that this is going to work. What I would like to have you do is wear compression stockings or learn to wrap the leg. Those we know work. There's no question that it works. Sometimes we do compression therapy until the ulcer heals, even before we do the vein ablation. There you go. But, but um, Daflon, you could try it, but I shouldn't be seeing people on Daflon for five, ten years. And we have ulcers that are, I think I have one ulcer that is older than I am. Looks like it's <laughs> finally healing. That's a lot of years to be taking Daflon. There's Daflon, there's Devinis. Yes. And then this new one, they're, they're flavonoids. It's not, I'm not saying they don't work, but I would, I prefer recom recommending something that I know work is definitive. Daflon and the Venice and your new one, 
don't know. It's too. I I don't have any anything against you trying trying them. You probably should try, but you should set a cut off. If it hasn't worked in three months, it's not going to work. Nobody should be on it for five, ten years. Yes, it's exactly my experience that I've had varying amounts of success. And in fact, I like to jump to this new one, Doxium, because a lot of the patients don't know it. And mm-hmm. there's a big shrug on our side when these patients <laughs> come because we would love to, all of us would love to pass the patients to ask a surgeon. But, you know, and especially, I think they're getting a little better at this. I think at university, there is a, somewhat of a unit there, but uh, KPH. So the challenges, of course, to afford private care. Is, is a bit challenging. So it, it really is a conundrum for us. And you're quite right. Yeah, people on this, the Daflon for years, I know. And then they get, they have it packed up at their homes because it's, uh, I believe it's on NHF. So you'll get it quite affordably, if not without paying. Mm-hmm. Very interesting thing that yep. if this is something that, and well, this will be my final question in one minute. I was speaking to Lindbergh Simpson, who does some, he is, I should say, a bariatric surgery. Mm-hmm. He does a lot of that. And he, well, he jumped surge and then he did the bariatrics and he loved that. And he was saying that if you do this procedure on patients, it will pay for itself in, and he gave a time period, a couple of years. So I just wonder if with partnerships with yourself and private, Physician, vascular surgeons, if they if 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 allowed to do this procedure, they would maybe take care of the need to buy all this daflon, you know. So, so. Daflon, and when they have ulcers, they take care of the ulcers and to the 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 um the social problem with having a sore foot because that's what it's. <laughs> It's um, yeah, it's it's not good, and by the time I see them, they have had some some psychological trauma from it. Um, yeah. There you go. So the so we mentioned you mentioned resources as a way that you would, you think we could benefit. This is a healthcare system. So I just, finally, just asking you to wrap up anything else, how that you would do or implement or how to improve our healthcare system and healthcare delivery in the country. Whoa. That's a big one. Okay. Okay. I, 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 this is what I would say. We are not very conscious of cost effectiveness. We make decisions, we are the test, we are treatment. The place that I know that is conscious <laughs> is a place that has the most resource in the world. But at Mayo Clinic, I did my uh, fellowship there, and every single procedure, lab, whatever that you order, the price is there. 
So you get <laughs> it's it's very effective because you have to think about it. You're not just sending somebody out with something and they go figure out the price and they pay for it. Everything you do have a price. And that is to get you conscious. With, all, with the resources that we have, we could do better. If we have a system to maximize the resources that we have. I see resources wasting every day, even at Hargreaves. There is so much waste. The OR time, we have, for example, in one OR, we have four nurses. And for the day, they do two hernia in that OR. And they turn over time and there's weight. And we are not maximizing what we have. We can do a lot more with what we have. I'm not saying that we don't have constraints, resource constraints, but I think we have to focus instead of throwing up our arms and saying we can do this and we can do that. I think we can do a heck of a lot more with what we have and the solution. <laughs> The solution, uh, saying that we don't have this and we need that, that is not a solution. That's a couple. Because I will tell you that I also work at Cleveland. <laughs> and what do, we, what do we do when we're sitting down in between cases? Oh, we complain. We need to have... Uh, a better MRI, a better CT, we need to have this. It's everywhere. It's not unique to places that have significant resource constraint. And we did a Mayo Clinic too. Uh, and Wayne State and even where I work at in, in Oregon, we complain we want this, we want that. For cardiac, we need LV, left ventricle assist device, we need uh, TVAR, it's, it's universal. So let's just forget about that. And for example, if you take a specific hospital, for example, if this was a go government hospital, Hargreaves, mm -hmm. I would say, okay, this is what we can do. We are trying to start newer surgery. So I'd say, okay, Whatever, whatever. You neurosurgery is not here. Neurosurgery is not a key piece. But if you break your leg, and I would spell it out, this is what can be done, and we will have protocols for everything so that nobody misses everything, anything, and everybody's mobilized at the same time. So you maximize your resources. One of the biggest costs of healthcare, for example. If we can pick up a patient who has rest pain in his leg and bypass the leg, we send him home the following day. If we wait until he have gangrenous toes, then, you know, okay, we bypass him, but he has to stay because we did the toe amputation. We have to check the wound. Then he comes back to clinic for a whole three months or even more until that heals up. So it's, it's, it's from two standpoints, is the system maximizing what resources we have, but it's also outreach, education, health promotion, 
to try and reduce the cost. Prevention is good, but when that doesn't work, you have to be ready to act real early, and that will reduce the cost. Sure. Well, Doc, thank you so much.